Turning then uh, for the last of our studies in the book of Judges at this time to chapter number 10 and 12. Looking at these five minor judges uh, this evening and learning life lessons uh, from them. And one of the features of our time, which is very evident, is a, a general talk about faith, that I have faith, you have faith, he, she has faith. There is this generalization about the faith that various people have, and this is very different from the precise language that we find in John's Gospel, or in Romans, or in the book of Galatians. People are comfortable speaking verbally or writing in the press, reporting in the media about those who have faith. And this perhaps is because the, the people that are being spoken about have been general in their conversation about having faith. Perhaps that is how they have expressed themselves and were comfortable in, in doing this, uh, that they are people of faith. Or perhaps it is the way that the press has gone that they're reluctant uh, to detail any deeper commitments or any specific attributes of the faith that the individual has. And so generally and, and frequently and often we hear about people being people of faith. And this can mean a whole and a wide range of things. Uh, the Duchess of Richmond died earlier in June, an outstanding person, a gifted person, involved in a vast range of charities. And the best that the press could come up with regarding her was that she was a person of strong faith. And that is a very general statement about that. And maybe perhaps that was how she expressed herself, or maybe that is where our press and society is at this time, this generalization about faith. And as we come to these five accounts of the five minor judges here, we have this type of generalization about them. Not because the writer is general in his view of faith, but rather that the subjects about which he is writing were general about their behavior of faith. There is a, a digression within the book of Judges, isn't there? There is a, a, a going down in the commitment and behavior within that book, climaxing in the last dark chapters of the book of Judges. Samson is on a far lower scale than Othniel, whom we thought of this morning, or Gideon, whom we've looked at before. There is this lowering of the tone morally and spiritually within the book of Judges. And this is very evident as we reflect on the minor judges today, that in the first three that we've thought of this morning, uh, there was evidence of commitment and enthusiasm to, to, to God and his ways and his program of conquering the promised land. Whereas the five minor judges we're thinking of this evening are, are very different. Somehow they've been blown off course. They fulfill their term. They do their work. 
They give some leadership. They apply God's law in certain circumstances. They're described as judging Israel. But there's nothing amazing about them. Nothing miraculous in their ministry. Nothing outstanding in their commitment. In fact, we'll learn the very opposite. That they're more interested in promoting themselves than in serving their God who has called them to serve. And so we come uh, to think of uh, these five minor judges uh, seeing once again the failure uh, within leadership in this time of the judges. In the, the major judges, that there were evident failures in Gideon's life, in Samson's life, in Abimelech, and in Jephthah. Those men about whom much more is written in the book of Judges, they were failing. And here we will see in these minor judges there is failing as well, which is making the people of that time and us now in, in reading the Old Testament long for the coming of one who will not fail, for the Savior who is foreshadowed here not by example but by contrast he will be different to these judges who are defective and imperfect he will be perfect he will not fail in his work and as we come to our study this evening we are reminded that we need the savior the savior must come we are dependent not on ourselves to save ourselves because like these recorded here, we too are imperfect. And we, like the people of this time, must look forward to the Savior. Susan, the Duchess of Richmond, did an amazing thing in her life. With all her fame, with all her wealth, with all her wisdom and connections and popularity in the 1950s, she went against the trend and she adopted two black babies. She was ostracized by her parents, by her social circle for doing this. But she believed this was the compassionate thing to do, the right thing to do. And it was. But it wouldn't save her. She, like us, like them, like these, need the Lord Jesus Christ. Despite all our good works, our best efforts, our high religion, we need the Savior and judge us by showing us the faults and failings of the major and the minor judges. Is pointing us beyond them to the one who would come and would not fail, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must trust him and depend upon him alone for our salvation. So what are the five, uh, the four lessons that, that arise uh, from these five uh, minor judges uh, this evening? The first is to focus on God's majesty, submission to life's mystery, to avoid empty materialism, and to remember our mortality. Focus on God's majesty. The minor judges are so-called, as we said this morning, because of the limited space that is given to them in this part of Judges. It is not because of the shortness of their reign, but because the smallness of the account 
that is given to them. Some of them range a long time. Tola, that we'll think of this evening, reigned for 23 years. Jair reigned for 22 years. Jephthah, a major judge, reigned for six years. Abimelech reigned for three years. Samson for 20 years. So many of them reigned for longer times than the major judges, but they are minor judges because of the little space that is given to them. The judges account are short, little more than they lived, they ruled, they died. Perhaps there was nothing miraculous, outstanding, wonderful, achieved in their rule. But the absence of any detail reminds us that the focus of the Bible is not on men and women, but on God. It's what he's doing on his work, on the unfolding of his purpose, on the coming of the Savior. And even in the the major Judges that we have in the book of Judges. The emphasis is not on how great those men were. But rather on how great their God was. In the account of Abimelech. Them killing the sons of Gideon on the stone. That chapter records for us God bringing about judgment upon Abimelech for what he did. It wasn't about Abimelech and the great atrocity of his life so much as as God in his holiness and, and righteousness working out his purpose, showing this attribute of his that he is just and righteous and holy. And Gideon with his few soldiers we see again this emphasis not on, on his great military tactical ability but rather on the greatness of God, craving that great victory from so little. And here in the minor judges, there's only a notice, an indication that they were there. They did serve. They did rule. But the focus is not on the man. The focus is on God. And even in the accounts that are so short of these judges, there are many elements that we just do not know what they mean. For example, in verse 2 of chapter 10, we read of Tola that he died and was buried at Shamor. And there's great discussion about where Shamor was. Is it Samaria because it has the same consonants in the Hebrew word? Or is it some other place? When we read of Bethlehem in relation to Ibsan in chapter 12, verse 8, which Bethlehem was this? Was this Bethlehem in the south in Judah or was this Bethlehem in the north? We don't know which Bethlehem it was. The focus in these brief accounts of the minor judges, as in the accounts of the major judges, is on God's majesty rather than on human achievement. And this is very different from the accounts of lives that we encounter, isn't it? When people are remembered and written about, their achievements are focused on and dealt with. Amitii, Etzioni, 
sociologists to inspire the, the political views of Tony Blair and of Bill Clinton has been written about in recent times. And they focused on his achievements, him achieving a, a doctorate in 18 months, him being the everything expert, having a considered opinion on many issues. The focus is on his ability. But in this account, the focus is on the God who rules and is sovereign over all of time. But what is it then about God that has been emphasized in these minor judges? If we're not to see the men then, but rather the God of the men, the God who's above the men, what is it about this God that we're being pointed to? And one of the emphasis about God that's been brought out here is his faithfulness. You see in chapter 10 and verse 1 in the account of Tola, that after Abimelech there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua. The question is, who was he saving Israel from? Usually, when a judge arises, we have a record of some foreign power, the Ammonites, the Amalekites, the king of Mesopotamia, the king of Moab, who had conquered the land of Israel, and the judge is raised up to save Israel from those foreign powers. But who is Tola raised up to save Israel from? There is no mention of a foreign power invading the land at this time. The answer probably is that he's raised up to save Israel from themselves. There has been a split within the nation of Israel. Abimelech has split the allegiances of the people of Israel. The Old Testament church, some are for him, some are against him. There is this division within God's people and God raises up Tola to save Israel, to bring healing and unity and oneness from separating among themselves. This is the God we're to see. The God of faithfulness, the God of love for his people, the God of compassion and mercy. That he intervenes, that he raises up saviors to care, to guide, to help, to steer his people. And so the focus in our life, the focus in our thought, the focus in our ways and behavior it's not on ourselves and not on the greatness of others, but rather on God, what he is doing, his compassion, his faithfulness, his provision for his people. The second lesson that arises here is submission to life's mysteries. Submission to life's mysteries. Now, it is a bit disjointed for us, reading out of chapter 10, uh, two of the minor judges, and then reading out of chapter 12, three of the minor judges. And the reason uh, for that disjointedness is because uh, there is a judge, Jephthah, who comes in between the two chapters, and his account is there, and it divides it. And as we look at this, we see that here there is this contrast being set up between the, the, 
the second minor judge and the third minor judge and Jephthah himself. Jephthah, we remember, had one daughter and he foolishly promised uh, to offer what came out of his house and it was his daughter, his only daughter, that emerged from his house and he offered that daughter. In contrast to the sadness of Jephthah's experience, there is the account of Jair in 10.3. He had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. And then Ibsan in 12 verse 8. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. He gave in marriage outside his clan and 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. Sandwiched between these minor judges who have 30 sons each and the one judge who had 30 daughters is Jephthah with his one daughter who was unmarried and whom he sacrificed. And this account, it, it reminds us of the mystery of God's dealings. How does one man have 30 sons and another man have 30 sons and 30 daughters and then 30 daughters-in-law while another one has just one daughter whom he loses? This account reminds us of the providence of God and the mystery of that providence that sometimes comes to our life and experience. And this lesson occurs right throughout the Bible, doesn't it? We have the account of Jesus and Herod seeking to kill Jesus as a baby. And Jesus and Mary and Joseph are able to escape down to Egypt. And, and Jesus is, is spared, but the other babies are put to the sword. We have the account of Peter being pursued by Herod and he's in prison and he is delivered from the prison while James is beheaded. The one life is spared. The other life is taken. And this account of the, the minor judges reminds us of this mystery of God's dealings with his people. It wasn't because there was more prayer for Peter that he was spared. Or it wasn't because James had less faith that he was beheaded. But rather, it was God's purpose, God's ways, God's providence for his people. And so, in our life, we look back and see the illnesses that others have had that we've been spared. We see the accidents that we've experienced that others have avoided. We see mysteries in our own lives and in the lives of others. We wrestle with them. We live with them. We pray over them. We, we struggle with them. The conversion of some of our family and not other members of our family. This account of the 
the minor judges reminds us that this mystery is, is right throughout the history of humanity. One commentator says we don't like to be without an explanation. But he says faith is willing, if need be, to be baffled, to bow and worship in the dark. And we are called in our life to submit to God's providence. A third life lesson emerging from these minor judges is to avoid empty materialism. One of the features of these minor judges is that nothing remarkable happens in their life. And we could think, well, it wasn't God's purpose, it wasn't his will. Sometimes just a, a steady ministry, a, a steady rule is, is just a, a really good thing to experience. The spectacular, the wonderful, the amazing, and Samson's experience, and Othniel's experience, and Gideon's experience, perhaps is the exception, and the rule is just the ordinary, common, mundane governance of the people of God. But there seems to be more to the absence of the miraculous and the wonderful than just the, 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 the ordinary providence of God. There seems to be a, a, a lust for power and for the promotion of self within most of these minor judges. They want to be remembered. They want their power base to be extended. They're blown off course from their calling by God to lead his people, to conquer their enemies, to do great things through his name and his power. And they plunge themselves into the pursuit of wealth. And this is brought out in the accounts of these minor judges. And this perhaps and probably is the reason for the shortness of their accounts. They've focused on the wrong things. They've majored on the minor issues of our life. And so their, their reign as judges is unremarkable and short in its account. So we have Jair in verses 3 to 5 of chapter 10. And here is Jair. He's got 30 sons. He would need a harem for the 30 sons, obviously. They're riding on 30 donkeys. Donkeys was the animal used by the, the kings of that time in his area to show their royalty and their power. Here is Jair, and this is what he majors on. Building up a, an empire. See, his sons are ruling over the, the cities of Havath Jair. He's extending through his sons this power base out into 30 cities. He wants an empire. He wants a kingdom. He wants the taxes. He wants the respect. He wants the prestige. This is the focus of this judge. And so there's nothing much remarkable about him. Ibsan, in chapter 12, uh, verse 8 to 10, he too has 30 sons. He has additionally 30 daughters. And he deliberately has this scheme of developing his contacts, his influence, his power. He gives his daughters in marriage to those outside of his clan in another Israelite clan to develop his connections and, and influence 
And then he brings in daughters from outside for his sons to further develop his influence and connections. His focus is on extending his influence and developing and establishing his power. Not much is said of Elon in verse 11 of chapter 12, but the, phrase, the, the term in verse 12, Agilon, in the Hebrew, Elon and Agilon use the same words, and it suggests that he named the burial site after himself. He wanted to be remembered. He wanted his name to be perpetuated. This was the culture. This was the ethos of these minor judges. And Abdon, uh, the fifth one in verse 13 of chapter 12, he had 40 sons. And he goes beyond the others by extending his power base into the next generation. He had 30 grandsons. And he too paraded them on donkeys as a sign of royalty and power and influence. Younger in his commentary describes these minor judges, these five minor judges as self-interested materialists, hungry for power. And this focus snuffed out, it seems, all acts of faith. It wasn't just that God wasn't going to be working at this time. There were enemies in Israel. He was calling on the people to subdue those enemies, to drive them out of the land, to turn the people again to his worship. But these men were interested in themselves, their wealth, their power, the perpetuation of their name into the future. They forgot about their calling, the majesty of their God, their commitment to serve his people. We're called in this to avoid empty materialism. There's all the insight into Amy Carmichael, that wonderful uh, Christian just from, from up the road. When she went to Japan, uh, she had a great heart for evangelism, would take along uh, a translator and, and meet with Japanese women to explain to them the gospel. But she soon found that often in the the, 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 the Bible study, the, the, the attention of the, the recipient uh, would, would be diverted to Amy Carmichael's clothes. She dressed as a British woman. She wore the gloves. She had the scarf. She, she had the, the finery, which they were not used to in that part of Japan where she was. And so she stopped dressing like that and began dressing in the Japanese style. She didn't want the attention of the recipients of her study to be diverted to material things. She wanted the focus to be on Christ and their eternal destiny. And what a challenge it is for us. What are we going to be remembered for? Our gold or our godliness or silver, or our service. Here are men called to serve, called to lead, and they get blown off track 
with developing their own power base and and filling their bank with coffers and missing out on this higher calling that God had given to them. And lastly, we're called in this account of the, the five minor judges to remember our mortality. One of the features of this account, because the accounts are, are so brief, it keeps coming up then that they died. We have it in chapter 12, uh, verse 7. There's Jephthah, the Gileadite, died. Uh, we have it again in verse number 10. Ibsan died and was buried at Bethlehem. We have it in verse 12, Elon died and was buried at Agilon. And then we have it again in verse 15, Abdon died and was buried at Pyrathon. And here is this repetition and this emphasis that these minor judges, however long their rules, however short their rules, whatever they achieved, whatever they sought, however they were blown off course, they came to an end. Their life was over. They died. That reminds us of our mortality, of our end, of the shortness of our life. It looks beyond them, doesn't it? It looks to the Savior who would come, the Lord Jesus, who would enter into death but rise again the third day to be the Savior, the Lord, the judge of all the earth. These men were temporary. These men were short-lived. Their lives were over. Jesus comes as the everlasting Savior. Is this a feature of your life? We're not morbid people. We're not called to be morbid people. But is it a a dimension of our experience? As the psalmist was praying, in that psalm we were singing, Teach me, Lord, how short my life is. Let me think about it. So that it will focus my mind. And, and men have done. We talked about Blaise Pascal last week. How he studied death. And then he sought to live his life backwards. Having grasped death. It's certainty. It's, it's the, 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 not knowing when it will come. It influenced his priorities. And his choices. Some philosophers have had their grave dog. They've had their grave dug at the, the entrance uh, to their, their house and estate. And every day as they exited and, and entered their house, they would pass this reminder of their mortality. Al Mohler, uh, as you know, he had the skull, uh, has the skull on, on his study desk. Joseph of Arimathea, he had his tomb bought and prepared and readied. A reminder of his mortality. And surely it's a good thing. You know, and this passage, one of the messages, one of the lessons from it has got to be that we too are short-lived. That our life is uncertain. That our life will end. We've been reminded of this in our congregation in this past week. Death will come. And for us, we, we, we need to think of it with, with gospel lenses, don't we? It's, it's not something to paralyze us. It's not something to haunt us. But rather it's, it's something that, that we need to face in the grace and the comfort of God's word. And, and something that has helped God's people over the centuries and, and, and can help us 
is, is a wonderful treatise by Thomas Brooks. It's been gone through many editions and, and publications since it was preached. It was a funeral sermon which he delivered based on a verse in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And the title of his treatise is that the day of death for the believer is his best day. And he unpacks this for us in, in a whole range of ways. As, as you can imagine, it's in volume 6 of Thomas Brooks. There will be a change of place for us. There will be a change of company for us, he says. There will be a change of employment for us. There will be a change of enjoyments for us. There will be a change that ends all changes for us. And he encourages us that the day of our death as believers will be our best day. This passage reminds us that we will die. Everyone's going to die. But that that day for the believer will be our best day. And so he applies it that we're not to overly mourn the death of a believer. Because that day is the best day in their experience. We're not to fear death, he says, because Christ has overcome death. But he says we are to prepare for death. And he has this, this great line that we can carry away on this point. He says, be afraid to live in such a state as a man would be afraid to die in. Remember our mortality. Focus then on God's majesty as an emphasis of these five minor judges. Let's not blow our own trumpet. Let's proclaim the praises of our Savior. Submit to life's mysteries. We don't always know the reason for events. Avoid empty materialism. Let us lay up treasure in heaven. And remember our mortality. We too shall die. So these minor judges have major lessons for our lives.